0: It was a funny experience of going to the pharmacy and, uh, you know, asking the pharmacist, do you have extra-large condoms? Right. You know, they would look at you and they would be like, yes, we have, oh, great, may I have uh, 24, please? <laughs> <laughs> and actually, extra-large condoms of a specific type sound better than others, so you need to experiment with that.
1: Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by Sonarworks, helping you get the most out of your mixes by correcting the sound of the speakers and headphones in your studio so you get your mix right the first time. Are you sick of doing multiple mixes and still you can't get the low end right? How would it feel to have badass bass the first time? Get a 21-day free trial at sonarworks.com. Are you ready to rock the perfect mix? This episode is sponsored by OWC. Otherworld computing which you can find at owc.com your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades diy installs and use macs for your studio let owc focus on keeping your studio mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music why ditch your existing mac when you can take your studio far into the future with owc learn more at owc.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio mac the speed to create, the capacity to dream. Find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, rock stars. It's your host, Lid Shaw. And welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce this, is Nikolai... Um, Georgiev. Did I say that right, Nick?
0: Hey, Liz. yeah, Yeah, that was all right. Close. Actually Georgiev, but uh, people just call me Nick Georgiev, so that's absolutely fine.
1: It's, it's so much better when you say it. Now I want to go home and rehearse it. <laughs> it's just, it's a great-sounding <laughs> name. Um, so, uh, a London-based engineer, producer, and plug-in developer. Nick is also an experienced lecturer in sound engineering and music production and a past chairman of the AES UK section. He's engaged closely with Acoustica Audio, which is a a company that creates plugins and emulations of all kinds of amazing sound and gear and equipment. And in fact, that's how I originally met Nick was um, after I had done a video interview with Doug Fern of DW Fern, and then he introduced me to Acoustica Audio. So um, so then Nick reached out. But uh, I'll continue on. So N- Nick has worked both with Acoustica Audio, both as an internal and external third-party plugin developer. As such, he took a major role in the creation of plugins such as Lime, Navy, Cream, and some of the modules in Pink. Nick currently works on his own line of plugins based on Acoustica's tech. And uh, the reason why we sort of found ourselves on this podcast today, too, is because one day when I was browsing Facebook after we had sort of friended each other, um, I had discovered that Nick was posting some videos um, from exotic spaces with incredible reverbs all around the world. So you might find him firing a gun in a long industrial tunnel tunnel <laughs> under a mountain somewhere, uh, maybe even floating in a boat when he does it, you know, or popping a <laughs> balloon in a beautiful church and capturing the reverbs. And I've always found this kind of stuff super fascinating. So I knew that we would want to learn more about Nick's adventures to capture and recreate reverbs from the secret spaces around the world. I'm really excited to learn more about who... Nick is, what he is creating, and even how we can recreate some of our own reverbs if we ever want to try that out. So please welcome Nick uh, Gjorgev. <laughs> I'll get it right one of these days, my friend. Nick, are you ready to rock? Yeah, let's rock. Awesome, dude. Such a pleasure to have you here. I mean, we were chatting about this before the interview, but just um, what a trip to just kind of go from connecting on Facebook to being on this podcast together, And and I kind of love how small the world becomes through the internet like that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice, actually. I, I, I have friends all over the world exactly for the same reason, you know, passion for sound and music.
1: Well, so I've done a little bit of an intro, but tell us more about you, yourself. I mean, I, I, I don't really know much about, you, you know, your studio world yet or whether you have your own studio. So tell us briefly who you are and how you got to where you are right now.
0: All right, well, I started first as a KGB agent. Oh, (laughs) I shouldn't probably mention. (laughs) No, sorry, I thought that I should say this just because of my name. Um, Well, I moved, uh, so I've been doing sound for a very long time. I was 15 when I did my first recording. I think about 15, 14, 15, 16, something like that. And I was basically the only guy who knew how to record something in my class at school. And so we thought that we we're just going to record some songs and uh i had a lot of musicians in my class and i was basically the only guy who could do it and i just loved the whole process so i started doing
1: it more and more what, what part and, of the world were you in when you were doing that
0: oh uh, that, well i'm from bulgaria so uh that was some more than 20 years ago for sure um so that was on some uh, four track uh, tape recorders and also i used i believe it was soundforge some of the very early versions where in order to mix, I had to use just a two-track editor and just uh, literally just take the two tracks, then record another two-track and just mix it without a fader, but just simply by using the percentage balance yes. uh, in the software. Yeah, yeah, in this way, basically make a mix, which was actually a really good learning experience.
1: It's like command line music. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, that, that kind of thing. <laughs>
1: um, so uh, so just, just for an aside, uh, right when I started this, um, recording Studio Rockstars early on in our Facebook group. And, and Rockstars, I, I encourage you, if you're not already in it, come join us in the group so you can meet the other rock stars, share your music, talk about it. rsrockstars.com slash FB will take you there. Um, but there was a woman who, who was studying engineering and apologies for, for not remembering her name, but she had posted something in there and it was this folk music from a stage in Bulgaria and it was just the most incredible sounding thing giant bass bagpipe instruments and some other stuff and it. it just right. it sounded like dubstep done with acoustic instruments
0: <laughs> right so i think i know very well what you're talking about so the bagpipe is a national instrument in bulgaria and actually I mean look it, it, I, I'm not going to preach you here how great Bulgarian folklore music is. Um go ahead man yeah, I'm I'm sold it's, already. It's definitely worth you know googling some of the some of the stuff that, that comes from there. Um it's uh, famous for its uneven time signatures. So a lot of the A lot of the stuff done there, it's um, in 7-8s, 9-8s, 11-8s, 13s, 16s, you know, these kind of time signatures. And uh, it's actually pretty tough to play that. And there's also a lot of music done, uh, you know, on bagpipes and all kinds of, you know, folklore instruments. And actually, there is a famous gathering of uh, bagpipe players in the mountains. Uh, So it's a beautiful valley in the south part of Bulgaria, and you get something like at least a hundred of them playing the same songs uh that's in the summer i think that's probably late july wow yeah beautiful beautiful actually always wanted to go there and just you know bring just a pair of mics really and just record the ambience and do something with it because it's it's just
1: beautiful all right well you know let me know if you need an assistant and i'm there
0: yeah that would be fun. uh
1: there's maybe not a whole lot of people in the world who are like, Yes, bagpipe convention, but I'm definitely one of those people. I think it's this the Scott in me you know i'm I'm probably Scottish origin as well.
0: all right, that's nice. Well, you know, I think actually a big part of the sound of these bagpipes is the fact that there is a drone, so you know they they've got the drone, which is uh just basically playing d a low d all the time, and then they solo on top of it,
1: well, you know. So, as James yeah. Brown said, down D, funky D, so <laughs> it makes sense to me.
0: <laughs> well, I think the beauty of it is that when you have hundreds of them, they're slightly out of tune, so that you get the really nice chorus effect uh, and you know beat frequencies and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, so this was going to be later in the podcast, but I wanted to ask you if you were a fan of electronic music, because I remember seeing pictures of you surrounded by synthesizers, and what you just described... Reminds me of the time you discover um, a dual oscillator synthesizer, and you and you, you know mm. you slightly detune them, and you get this really big sound.
0: Yeah, well, I'm I'm a fan of all kinds of music, so you you know you find me listening all kinds of music from baroque music through classical, through avant-garde, then through electronic, hip hop, uh, metal, you know, experimental electronic, uh, just. Uh, I don't know, Psytrance, whatever, really, and lots of folklore music from around the world. So, yeah, I don't I don't stop at a specific genre. Uh, but it's interesting that you say this about the two oscillators because I think that, you know, working as a plugin developer and also someone who, uh, you know, samples reverbs and records the sound of acoustics, um, I found that very often the beauty is in the imperfections and those small differences, Uh mm which creates, you know, the the beauty in the sound and what makes it interesting.
1: I would agree. I'd say that there's a lot of um, instruments, amplifiers, microphones, preamps, mixers, you know, tape machines, all these tools that we embrace in the studio where we might uh, love a particular a particular thing, but one of the things we love about it is the way that it's not quite perfect or it kind of Cr- crunches a little bit, or it just, you know, creates harmonic distortion and things like that.
0: Mm, yeah, that's actually quite a big part of uh, the challenge in recreating uh, analog gear. But I mm-hmm. guess that's a slightly different topic. But yeah, that's that's a very big thing, um, big challenge.
1: Well, so you were recording at, at the, uh, the ripe young age of 14 and 15 in Bulgaria. Not many of us can uh, say that's where we started out. Making records, very cool. What what were some of you know? What was your path from there? Did you find yourself in studios in Bulgaria? I, I believe. Are you in England now? Yes, yes. I'm based
0: in London. I live in London. I've been here for eleven years now. So London is my home, really. I can okay. say this. All okay. right, uh, great. But um, I I did work for a while uh, in Life Sound. Um, I really started at a very low position, you know, just uh, stagehands. And then, you know, I moved up a bit from there. I worked also, well, Well, some of the live gigs were like pretty large scale gigs. Uh, you know, we're talking stadiums and big name bands. Um, then I also worked with some friends uh, who had studios, so I learned a bit of the craft there. Uh, and it was really a lot about experimentation. I, mean, I re- remember my first recording was done with headphones instead of mic because that's what I had. Uh, but then I wasn't happy with the sound that I got. So I started experimenting and trying to get a better sound. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been doing this for a while in Bulgaria. But really, it's uh, 11 years ago when I decided that I'm definitely going to do this for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, back in Bulgaria, I had a printing house and an advertisement agency. So, you know, it's a very different uh, world and, and life. Mm-hmm. And so I had that and music, you know, I was playing guitar, composing music, recording music, composing music for other people, mixing, stuff like that. Uh, but it was not my, you know, primary income. And so, you know, when it's not the thing that you do all day long, you can never be as good as you want to be. Hmm. Um, besides, I think that at that time there was still limited information. You know, nowadays, there's a bit more information in all these podcasts like yours. And there's all kinds of forums, magazines, videos, and so on. Uh, Back in the day, it was not that easy to get information and learn. So I thought that the best way to do it is just to move uh, to the UK, study here, and just get surrounded by people who know the art better than I do. Yeah, it's how it happened.
1: I agree. When I went to school, there were a lot of things that I learned about recording from school, but one of my biggest... Benefits was just surrounding myself with other people who were trying to learn the same thing
0: hmm. Well, I studied here. I did um, two years at SE London Um, and then as soon as I left, I actually started. Um, well, I was quite fortunate you know, I should say because a lot of students uh, have this problem that when they graduate on the day after They just don't have anything to do and they have to look for a job where I had already built some contacts and I actually had uh, a booking for a, well, an album recording, which took 14 nights and we recorded it in this church uh, here in London. And the reason why we recorded it at night is because it was really noisy. You know, the problem with London is not that you can't find good venues, but that most of them are noisy. Mm. Um, so, you know, it was classical music, just classical guitar, an extremely good player, and um by the time i knew pretty much what's needed to capture performance like this and you know uh, funny enough you know i had worked a lot in the studios at uh, uni and there was some really good studios so you know there was a few SSL and eve consoles you know decent se- selection of microphones and all of that but as soon as I went there and, you know, I heard how that instrument sounded in this beautiful, beautiful space, I think this is where my love uh, with, uh, you know, acoustic spaces and reverbs uh, mm-hmm. began. And yeah, I just, it just, just, this whole thing happened and the album was recorded very well. And um you know, the friends of that performer just loved the recording and then, then they called me and so this is how basically I started uh, freelancing as a recording engineer here in London.
1: Well, let me ask you this, Nick. Um, what are some of the things that you remember about how you recorded a classical guitar in a in a church like that? Was there a particular micing that you used that you, that you want to talk about?
0: Yeah, I can talk about this actually. <laughs> you know, I... Um, I cheated a little bit, sort of speaking. So because while I was a student, I had to write this uh, assignment and you know, perform a research on the recording of a specific instrument. What I did is that I contacted this player, same player that I recorded after this. Um, and we just took a bunch of mics and we spent a couple or maybe a few actually, twelve hour long sessions uh, in that same space. And I used every possible stereo technique that <laughs> you can think of. So, you know, I went through AB, you know, I went through near coincident, you know, XYs and bloom lines, uh, mid side. I went for, uh, uh, you know, RTFs and all kinds of uh, near coincident techniques with cardioid microphones. And I just, you know, built an idea of how these techniques sound like on that instrument in that space. And I also tried lots of different distances, which is actually a very, very big uh, factor when you record an instrument in a space like this. And I guess the biggest challenge here was that the player himself was a purist. So one of the requirements for me to get the job and record the album was that I would record him with two microphones only. Now, I know that's one instrument, but you know if I could choose... Today what I would do is I would put two mics close near the instrument, say mm-hmm. between a meter and maybe up to two meters if the space is not very reverberant. I will most probably use omnidirectional microphones because there's no um, proximity effect and generally the sound, I find the sound a little bit more natural. Yeah. Um, and then I would put two other mics further back so that I can capture a bit of the reverberation. And the trick here is that because the classical guitar is such a small instrument, um, you want to keep the close pair narrow so that you get a good focus in the center of the stereo image. Because if you spread it too much, you're going to lose the focus and the instrument won't sound the way it should. It's just simply going to start bouncing from you know the left to the right speaker mm-hmm. and you're going to lose the focus. But if you keep it narrow, the problem then is that the reverberation around the instrument is not captured Mm -hmm. uh, and it's full width. So this is why I would prefer to have also a room pair. Mm -hmm. Uh, The trouble is that the guy simply didn't want this. So the whole mixing of the album, funny enough, was done by simply moving the mics either closer or further away from him and just literally by adjusting the distance by 10 to 20 centimeters at the most uh, you would get different colors and then if you get further away from the instrument you would want to space the mics a bit more to compensate for the distance and you know get the same uh, stereo width
1: yeah that's interesting. Um, the thought that comes to mind is the um, oh goodness I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher my technology but maybe it'll rescue us when we talk about the radial um, dispersion of sound you know, a, a narrow um, a narrow footprint you know captures the sound up close but then as you back up it's it's you know you 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 picture this the the square getting much larger um, to capture the same amount of sound um, and I'm forgetting what the the uh, math, equation is for that. It's like, you know, four times the sound or the square. Oh, right. Screw. Yes,
0: yes, 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 um, yes. No, but, no, that's exactly what you're describing there. And and actually, I find this very common for, for my work. So, you know, as I said, I actually record most of the things that I record in uh, spaces with uh, cool acoustics. Yeah. So I, I'd much rather record in, in a nice live room that has, you know, sound than in, in a dead live room. And I find it that the further away that I'm from the instruments, um, the more I space the mics.
1: Yeah. So a couple of observations. You talked about getting, you said, get close to the instrument. And you said one meter to two meters. And what's funny is for many of us in the studio, when we think of close, we're thinking of a 57 jammed right up on a guitar amp speaker, you know. So, and then you made the comment that um, it's okay to use directional mics because there's no proximity. Well, you're, I believe you're right. At one meter to two meters, we have we're not close enough for the proximity effect yet, right?
0: All right. Okay. So I can expand a bit on that. So because this was a recording of classical music, the idea here is to capture it as natural. You know, the sound should be as natural as possible. And for that reason, I would stay away from the instrument. So one meter is pretty much the minimum uh, you want to you want to have. Yeah. between the mics and the instrument that's specifically for guitar um now of course if i'm recording pop music or something that you know would benefit from that super close miking, i'd go for it mm-hmm. so i wouldn't limit myself to that one meter rule but that's specifically for classical music uh and that instrument now what you're talking about, the proximity thing that you're saying there, so essentially the way most people would know about this is that if you have a normal cardioid vocal mic, the closer you sing into the mic, the more bass your voice will have. Yeah. Right? Now, so usually microphones are measured at about one meter of a distance. What that means is that when you go to the website of the manufacturer and look at the frequency response, that's usually given at a meter distance. So if you see a flat frequency response there, it means that if you sink closer, you know, from closer distance into it, you're actually boosting the lows in comparison to what's displayed there on the graph. Now, what a lot of people actually don't know is that as soon as you reach that critical distance and you start getting further away, the proximity effect actually works in reverse. So you start losing low end. And that can actually be a really, really big problem for room mics, unless that's what you want, Uh, But so omnidirectional microphones or microphones that pick up the sound from everywhere, by definition, or at least if they're perfectly designed, you know, they're pure omnis, by definition, they do not exhibit proximity effects. So it doesn't matter if they're close or if they're far, they will deliver always the same frequency response. They won't boost the sound, they won't, uh, the, the low frequencies, they won't cut the low frequencies. But cardioid microphones, for example, always do this. Figure of eight microphones, which most ribbon microphones are figure of eight, do this. Yeah. So there's a lot, you know, to be known uh, when it comes to polar patterns. Actually, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a big thing.
1: I think of my Cole's forty thirty eight ribbon mic, and that has a lot of proximity effect now. But what I don't remember is whether all figure eight patterns always have more proximity than a cardioid. Is that true or not?
0: Um, in general, that is true, yes. Um, so, you know, the way these go is uh, Omni doesn't have any proximity. Figure of eight has the most proximity. Cardio, it's in the middle. Uh, so actually, I don't know if you know this, but if you get your COS uh, 4038s, which are figure of eight, by the way, they're perfectly symmetrical figure of eights. Hmm. And if you put an Omni mic right on top of the coils. And then you blend them. What you're going to get, you know, blend them 50-50, uh, what you're going to get is a cardioid polar pattern. Oh, interesting. Wow. No. Yes. And, and that is actually how the very first cardioid microphones were made. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is actually why the cardioid microphone will be sort of in the middle when it comes to proximity effect.
1: Oh, that's very uh, cool.
0: And another interesting observation, actually, since with, on the on the subject, is that um, when it comes to figure comes to figure of eight, so my impression is that generally speaking, small diaphragm condenser figure of eights uh, sound really thin at a distance. Then a large diaphragm figure of eight usually sounds a little bit better. So if you think something like uh, an, S, um, sorry, an um, U87 or a TLM-170, a C414, you know, mm-hmm. any one of these like typical large diaphragm mics that has also figure eight polar button, that behaves a little bit better at distance. You know, you don't lose that much low end, but ribbons actually... Um, you know, they always have a little bit of an exaggerated low frequency, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of a boost kind of thing. Now, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I believe this is because you have a resonant frequency that's placed in the low frequencies with ribbon mics and with condensers that's in the high frequencies. So I, if I want to use figure of eight mics as room mics, I usually go for ribbon mics because they usually sound fat. You know, even at yeah. a
1: distance. Yeah, uh, that that's totally been my experience. But it's so cool to hear it described as far as why that's the case. And uh, you know, I, I another mic that we talked about recently on the show with uh, John Cuniberti, and then uh, my friend Matt Boudreau over at Working Class Audio has been talking about this too. Is the uh, the AEA R eighty eight stereo mic? Um, I think I'm getting the the model number right, but. I imagine that's probably a great choice for a room mic um for stereo if you want to get back where you've got that that dual figure yeah,
0: of it. Yeah. Yeah, so that's yeah, exactly. So that I mean I, I believe the I know which one you're talking about. That would be able to do both bloom line and midside, right? It's I like think it's so, a little yeah. bit like the Royer SF24. So it's two it's two capsules above each other. Yeah, yeah? exactly. Yeah. So, well, the beauty of a microphone like this is that um, because the capsules are so close, you will never get any um, phase differences in the low frequencies, which means that if you mono uh, the room mics, if you you know put them in mono for whatever reason, you're not going to get any really phase issues yeah. with the recording. Yeah. Um, which actually sometimes, which I... I really like, but sometimes I would intentionally go for spaced omnis because then you also have a difference in the low-frequency response, and the sound is a bit more spacious.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, I imagine it's probably a bit like those two bagpipe bass instruments slightly out of tune from each other. You might, you might get. A, I mean, maybe I'm way off with this, but I no, imagine no. the low end is slightly different in phase, so you get sort mm-hmm. of a thicker mm-hmm, sound. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely no you're spot on here actually you're spot on it this is very right like exactly the way you described it, I describe it the same way Well so um, so cool Mm you know actually well I I I, don't, I, I guess I, I hope I'm not getting carried away too much uh, no, with never. with the topic <laughs> <laughs> Um what I like to do often is to get omnidirectional mics and put them on the floor, on the ceiling, on the walls. Um, Of course, you can get pressure zone microphones Mm -hmm. that are designed to be placed on walls, but nothing stops you from putting an Omni mic um, just on a surface. And the benefit of this is that you need less gain from your mic pre, but also, if you think about it, so if the mic is a little bit above the floor, and you're singing into it, or there's a drum kit, whatever. The first sound that will reach the microphone is the direct sound, but then there will also be a reflection from the floor. Now, that reflection will arrive a little bit later into the microphones, and will cause comb filtering,
1: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: where if you've got the mics on the floor, you're avoiding that reflection. And so, actually, the practical result of that is that, it's almost as if the space is a bit larger and the sound image is a bit clearer. So, you know, when I was recording uh, all of these reverbs that I that, that you've seen on Facebook, I made sure that I recorded the sounds not only with the mics on the stands, but also them being placed on the sidewalls of the space or on the floor and so on.
1: So cool. Well, that actually reminds me of one of the things I learned when I was Recording drums with Steve Albini up at Electrical Audio in Chicago, mm. is he he would you know mic up the drum kit close, and then he would also put a pair of of what we would just call ambient mics down on the floor, sort of to the left and right mm. of the kit and out a little mm. bit. And and on the very first session I was there at, he used these uh, Altec Coke bottle mics. They were omni capsules, and he would lay it down on the floor, but then he'd tape it so that the the capsule element went even lower and sort of tilted the mic slightly up so that the capsule was down on the floor level. And um, embarrassingly, I, I didn't see it there, and I backed up, and I, and I just about stepped on his microphone on my first session. But uh, I learned quickly. <laughs> 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 um, and I thought that was a really cool trick. Um, and, and it gives you, you know, I think my understanding of it is you have a direct sound up from the drums approaching the mic And you do get a reflection, but just not from the floor that's right there. You don't get a reflection until that sound goes to the farthest wall and comes back again, which would, you know, should make it sound like a big room like you just described.
0: Yes. And actually, a thing that you can try with such kind of setup is you can just get a a bit of acoustic foam. Uh, you know, just the stuff that people use to make the uh, control rooms too dead and uh, kill the, the mid and the high frequencies yeah. without treating the lows. Uh, but you can just get a bit of that and a rubber band and just put it under the mic. Just put the rubber band to hold it in place and just place the mic on the acoustic foam. And what that will do, it will also isolate it from the vibrations of the floor. So mm. this may be something that you want or maybe something that you don't want, but it's something worth experimenting with because um, it just changes the sound quite a lot. It just basically decouples the mic from the vibrations of the floor.
1: Very cool, um, yeah.
0: And, and actually, this is also something that people with small live rooms can try. So imagine that you've got a really small space where you're recording drums and you want to capture the cymbals. Well, you can actually, rather than going for cardioid mics, you could go for omni mics and just stick them to the ceiling. Just make them touch the ceiling. And I find this works usually better with small diaphragm mics.
1: Interesting. So it's the same idea as the floor, but just doing it with the ceiling instead. Mm-hmm.
0: And you're avoiding the reflection from the ceiling, which reduces the comb filtering, which means that the cymbals will sound clearer and more present.
1: Yeah, that makes great sense. Well, so very cool to talk about all these miking techniques. And I'm glad we dug into that. Um, Tell us, you know, you've you've also somehow along your your journey learned how to program and create plugins and and that sort of thing. Talk a little bit about you know what you studied for that, and briefly bring us through the story of you learning how to create plugins yourself. All right,
0: so I, I should admit that I'm not some kind of hardcore program, hardcore programmer. You know, I'm not. Uh, I'm a geek, you know. Clearly, quite technical, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not. Uh, I, I don't program as much. I mean, I've I've got an idea, you know. Yeah. I, I've studied a bit of that. I actually studied that uh, as a kid you know we used to write some uh, viruses that we would install on uh, you know the school computers back, for fun back and when you
1: worked for the kgb you i mean, mean. <laughs> well
0: no that was actually before that before they bribed me <laughs> no 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 but it was all, all very innocent because we always had the antivirus as well written and we were just mocking the teachers at school. and yeah anyway I, i've got a i've got an understanding of it and, and i know some of the basics but i'm not a really good programmer. Uh, the thing is that, um, so I'm using acoustic audio technology to create my plugins. Mm-hmm. And so that's based on convolution. But it's so, you know, when, when I say convolution, you could think of Logic Space Designer Reverb plugin, or you can think of uh, Waves Q Clone, or you can think of uh, Altiverb, or, uh, you know, there's, there's quite a few of these that, that are based on, on convolution. Uh, except that they are, well, if I may say so, they're not that advanced uh, because, um, you know, what is really convolution? Well, it's like taking a picture of, well, you literally run a a sample through, a test-tone sample through a device and you can capture its behavior. But what you capture is static. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just to give you an example, if you um, say you want to capture the sound of your 1073, you know, uh, mic pre, now that has a bunch of things that need to be emulated. And if you run a single impulse response through it, you'll be able to capture some of it, mm-hmm. but you have the behavior of that pre at only one specific gain, uh, input gain. But we all know that when you shout, when you're singing into 1072 and you really shout into it, you start getting the saturation. Mm
1: -hmm. So The imperfections.
0: Exactly. But actually, that's something that you want. And so what you really need to do here is you need to actually create something that is rather more like a video. So you need to... uh, capture the behavior of that device, not only at, uh, you know, normal input levels, but also at really hot levels and also at low levels and emulate these dynamically. So, uh, you know, normal convolution doesn't actually work for this.
1: Fascinating, but the yeah.
0: point, so, so, you know, it's, it's it's actually what that that technology is called nonlinear convolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can dig into it, but I guess that's not really the point. The point is that it allows you to capture all kinds of devices without having to know how to program, which is awesome. You know? I think that's
1: encouraging. So, that gives us all hope.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well basically what you need to 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 be able to do is to record uh very well. Mm-hmm. So you need to be a damn good recording engineer. And surprisingly I have a bit of experience in that. And um well, that's so, good.
1: we're in the right place to talk about that too. So great. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so it, it's actually, yeah, mate. I mean, honestly, you know, I was recording these reverbs um about a month ago uh, just here in London, you know, and I found these crazy tunnels with some really interesting flutter echoes, but like really long flutter echoes. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I could record this to tape? But these were, you know, just tunnels around the parks here in London. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh, canal walks here. Uh, you know, where, where you've got these bridges as well. And so under the bridge, you would get a really interesting echo. And so I, I actually got this uh, Nagra Forest 1972 portable tape machine. Wow. And and I tracked there. And do you know what's the biggest challenge? is the gain structure. You know, is the thing that yeah. every good recording starts with. You know, if your gain structure is not good, you know, you're in trouble. But here, it was a huge challenge, like a huge challenge, because tape has a very limited, um, you know, um, the signal to noise ratio. Yeah. So what you need to do is, you need to track at a very high level, but because you're using a gunshot, or a popping of a balloon, that creates an extremely high peak, but the tail of the sound, you know, the body of the sound is at a very low level. So you need to peak literally one or two dBs below the clipping point of the tape. You know, you need to hit that saturation curve perfectly. Otherwise, you end up with a lot of noise or distortion.
1: Well, I was going to say, you just need to go to Abbey Road and go have a conversation with George Martin, you know, if you could go back in time and find out how they did the piano chord in the day in the life.
0: (laughs) But what I'm saying is, it's funny enough, actually, the technique that I'm using is, well, there's a, there's some coding inside, and there's some there's quite a bit of technical stuff that you need to be aware of. But it's nothing crazier than reading a few books on, you know, signal processing and stuff like that. And actually, the biggest asset here for me is my ability to record music. So, you we basically the way we do it is we record the devices in exactly the same way as you would record. A room for altiverb in the same way I do my reverbs. Although there is a difference between you know the way I do it and the way you know most convolution plugins do it, but also I can actually record the behavior of an equalizer, of um you know circuit distortion filter, even things like compressor or a flanger.
1: Okay, I think of um, you know when you're talking about nonlinear, I'm thinking of different axes, axes, like A-X-I-S, um, where you have a time axis, maybe you have a frequency axis, but then now you also have this non-linearity non-lin- axis that allows you to measure things in a way that gives you that, that, that all these variations that are more real world.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get back to the 1073 mic pre. The way I would sample this is I would run, let's say, 60 different test tones Uh, in 1db steps and in this way I can capture 60 db of its dynamic range and so that then when You have your vocal recording that was done with your Interface and you want to emulate the sound of the 1073 you would run it into my plugin and that would actually track the input level of the vocal and when it's slow it will send it to the low uh, to the sample that represents the behavior of the device at low level, mm. and when you shout, it will go into the sample that, and and it will basically uh, make a smoothless transition. You know, you've got different ways in which you tra- make the transition between the different layers of samples.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah, I bet this stuff gets really interesting. So, um, off the top of your head, if somebody thought, "I want to go begin to learn about this stuff and learn about," programming or get to the kind of knowledge base that you have, are there a couple of resources or or direct places you want to point the rock stars to?
0: There is actually an awesome book on DSP, which uh, will give you a very good idea of what convolution is and generally speaking, how different filters work. Yeah. So actually, Digital Audio Explained for the Audio Engineer by Nika Aldrich. It's an awesome book. And I really like it because it um, debunks a lot of myths. You know, for example, a lot of people think that 16-bit recording uh, captures less accurately the sound than a 24-bit recording. Well, that's completely untrue. That is just not true. The only difference really is the amount of noise that you get in the recording. Uh, Also, a lot of people think that if you recorded low levels, the sound quality will be worse. But that's also untrue. The only difference is, again, that you get more noise. And that's the only difference and no other difference. And it can be proven scientifically.
1: Oh, that's pretty wild. Well, these are great resources, so thank you for sharing that. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, once you began to learn how to understand convolution and, and get into the plugin design. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your experience working with acoustic audio and, and you know doing some plug-in design yourself?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, I, I um, basically installed their software some, I think six years ago it was, and I really liked the sound of it. So There was just a free thing that, you know, you could install and just try it. And I was so happy with it. I, you know, just had a lot of experience working on boards like SSL and Neve, and um, I just couldn't find that sound in plugins. And so I installed that, actually it's called Nebula. And so, you know, the way we were talking about um, how you can actually sample devices and and spaces and things like that, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than program them because what a lot of developers do is they try to, let's say they're building an equalizer or a compressor, What well, they will open it and they will figure out, well, there's like this inductor there, this resistor there, that capacitor there, that valve there, that transformer, and they'll try to model the behavior of each component and mm-hmm. then build a mathematical system that emulates the whole thing. Well, again, the way we do it is we simply record the sound of it. Um, and so, you know the way you've got something like contact which is a sampler for instruments acoustic has a similar thing called nebula which allows you to load samples of different devices okay and so nebula currently is in version four uh i think well i don't have the figures but even during version three there was something like 10,000 libraries. I'm not talking about samples. I'm talking libraries. Yes, okay, well, some good, some not good, you know, some excellent, some pretty rubbish, but we're talking about 10,000 libraries of all kinds of devices. Now, (laughs) there is, um, so it's a sampler for gear, basically. And so that's the thing that I got, uh, you know, I got the free version of it some six years ago. I really like the sound, so I contacted the CEO of the company. At the time, it was one or a two-man company. Now it's a growing, you know, constantly expanding company. Mm-hmm. But, and I said, mate, that just sounds awesome. I, <laughs> what's going on here? And, uh, you know, I just then read about it. I I saw that it's different tech, like completely different tech from anything else on the market. And uh, I thought, well, can I develop? for this I just really like the sound and I'd I'd love to have this and that specific device which I've used for years and, and I love the sound of it but I don't have it and you know I could buy it but mm, I wish I had 16 channels of it yeah
1: yeah, yeah. I know that feeling all right so um, then did you so then you began to do some testing and, and sort of cr- help create the models for different plugins for them
0: yeah, at the time I was involved with the AES And so what we did is we we, we we used to organize lots of lectures. There's a very interesting resource, actually. I mean, if you really want to geek out uh, on YouTube, there's the AES UK section, YouTube channel. And so we'd organize 10 events every month. Uh, sorry, that's that's too much. 10 events every year, 10 lectures every year mm-hmm. here in London. free events. um. And I invited Giancarlo to do a talk with, you know, the CEO of the company. And he basically went into the geeky stuff and explained how the tech works. So that was my first lesson. And then we ended up in the pub, having a few pints, chatting about, you know, everything really, audio and music. And uh, how the whole thing began. And then I started learning the platform little by little. Uh, reading any resources I could find asking him questions asking tech support questions and then you know I just got a job to record a device and that's how the whole thing started so you know as soon as I learned a bit the craft I decided it's time for me to create something cool
1: that's very cool well um what uh would you like to give a shout out to any of the plugins that you worked on that the rock stars might want to go check out
0: Uh, Well, they probably want to check out, uh, you know... Well, okay, I'll mention Pink, too, because it's a really popular choice uh, for many people. I have to admit, I did almost no work on that one. I sampled one of the EQs only. Uh, So there's, I think, five EQs in this new version. The old version, there were only two in the first version. Now there's five. So I haven't done, like, as much of the work on that one. But that doesn't really matter. It's an excellent plugin. Um, it emulates a famous American um,
1: console, should right, I say? Right. All, all, the, all the consoles we hope it would emulate. <laughs>
0: uh, well, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a clean, upfront, in-your-face-sounding, punchy, um, popular-for-rock-music console, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, well, it's, it's all right, it's all right, I,
1: I understand, but... Um, um, we can't it, mention anything by names, but the plug how does Pink work? So you would you would load this plugin and then you can choose some of the different console and EQ emulations.
0: Yeah. So basically, you know, remember I told you that there is the sampler plugin Nebula,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and that loads. So if if you get that, you can load samples of let's say the high shelf of uh, an equalizer, the low shelf of an equalizer, the mid peak, or uh, the Thirty to one ratio of uh, this or that compressor, and uh, or a 1073 pre or something like that. Um, now the way Pink works is literally it's made of plenty of samplers, mm-hmm. so plenty of Nebulus. And so if you have a four band EQ, there's four Nebulus, each one responsible for uh, each band of the uh, of the EQ. Then if you have a circuit distortion uh, emulation which, you know, makes the sound of um, the mix bus, uh, then that's another Nebula sampler. Then you have a compressor that's another Nebula sampler. So actually what you see there, uh, it's plenty of samplers under Mm -hmm. one single skin. And, you know, what, I mean, the really cool thing about this is, you know, if you think about it, is that you're not trying to um, recreate the device. You're extracting the sound of it. So if you think, you could think about it in this way, use any kind of synthesis to recreate a piano. Is it going to sound like a piano? You may say, ah, that sounds a bit like a piano, but it's not going to sound like an acoustic piano. Mm -hmm. Oh, Oh, okay, I'm exaggerating the difference here. You know, algorithmic plugins can be very good, Uh, But there is this little thing that you can actually capture when you grab, you know, when you just have it from the device itself. And so, uh, for example, the equalizers, the way, you know, we decided to make them is that uh, rather than having uh, four bands of your 550 model, for example, of some, you know, you would have, uh, you know, a you would be able to choose whether you want the low bands to be from model A or model B or model C, you know, and and and, and so actually you can then merge the impulse responses of different bands and create your own analog EQ, mm, so to That's speaking. fascinating.
1: So I imagine it takes, you need to give yourself a little bit of time to just get to know it and get to know what these different sounds are so you can put them together. And when you talk about the... Um, Modeling uh, components within something versus uh, this convolution, where you where you actually measure the actual device. It's almost like um, offering somebody like we've recreated all the colors that that Van Gogh would uh, paint with, and now you can have all those colors versus a convolution plugin which measures. Actually, we're like, well, what would Van Gogh do with all those paints if he painted right now? How would it look? Yeah, so. <laughs> some, yeah, you could you could see it that way. Just <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, yeah, thanks for humoring me on that one. I like to t- do weird analogies, but <laughs> um, well, very cool. So so you you did that. Um, Let's take a break for a moment. We'll come back in for the jam session, and we'll really dig into talking about reverbs and sampling these spaces. And, and, you know, Rockstars, we can even get into um, educating you a little bit on how you can go begin to learn this stuff yourself as well. Um, A reminder that we'll have links to stuff we're talking about um, in the blog post in the show notes. So if you're on your mobile device, just click through, and it'll take you right there. And uh, also, Rockstars, if you're getting into mixing right now and you want to take my free basic mixing class called mixmasterbundle.com just go there and you can download multi-tracks i'll show you how to mix in any DAW using free and stock plugins so you can begin to uh, get some of these basics down and get to the more advanced stuff we'll see you guys in just a minute for the jam session You've already invested in your studio speakers, headphones, and treatment of the room. And you're passionate about creating great music, but your mixes don't seem to translate to the rest of the world. The reason is that your speakers and headphones are not telling you the whole story. The frequency response of your studio has huge peaks and valleys all throughout the low end that are completely screwing up your perspective. You may be doing your best to hit the bullseye with your mix, but your room makes the target of a perfect mix impossible to find. Wouldn't it feel great if there was a simple tool that could fix all that for you and help you get your mixes right the first time? Introducing Sonarworks Reference 4, the affordable solution to correcting your speakers and headphones in your studio. Built for Windows and Mac, Sonarworks helps you position your speakers, correct your control room imperfections, and get a million dollar sound on a home studio budget. Get a 21 day free trial at sonarworks.com and start your journey toward the perfect mix. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Other World Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your existing Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM, install an SSD drive, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. Hey, rock stars, we're back now for the jam session. My guest today, oh my goodness, is I, Um <laughs> Georgiev. I uh, can't even. like your
0: gift?
1: Yeah. <laughs> when you say it, it's great, man. When I say it, I just want to keep practicing. So thank you. Thank you for your patience, Nick. Um, so we're going to jump back in for the jam session. Nick, are you ready to jam? Yeah, let's jam. All right, dude. Um, I know you've got another book you want to tell us about. And then I really want to dig into talking about um, how you, you know, your adventures to capture these reverbs and what you're doing to recreate this stuff and what's coming and all that. So let us know. I think you you remembered a book you wanted to tell us about.
0: Yeah. So other than Nika Aldrich's book on digital audio, uh, because you asked about it, uh, there is another one. Actually, you could just go online to dspguide.com, and it's it's nice book by Stephen Smith. Uh, it's the scientists and engineers' guide to digital signal processing. Okay, I warn you, this one is geek level. <laughs> Next level,
1: Geek level extreme. But but, but
0: but but you asked for it, so here you go. It, it's it's a really good introduction to digital signal processing. So filters and all kinds of stuff that you may want to know. Um, uh, but so actually, cool. you know what's interesting that um, I find it that, that having learned, you know, all these tech stuff about compressors and filters and digital audio and, and all of that actually helps me to be a better recording engineer. Yeah. Because you understand your tools. You, you really understand your tools.
1: I think in a huge way. And I mean, I, a lot of times when we're in the studio, we we have some ideas about what something might sound like, but we kind of have to go through the the process of, let me try this, let me try that, and, and then choose the one I like. And that can be time consuming. But it's wonderful when you remind us of things like, you know, when you, when you talk about how the small diaphragm condensers, and um, f- I think you said figure eight, um, when they're back from the source, they tend to sound thinner and not have the low end, whereas, you know, the resonance of a, of a pair of figure eights on a ribbon mic has that deeper response. And, and it's those kinds of understandings that help us uh, make the right decision quicker in the studio, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Actually, if you want me to expand a bit on that, the dynamic mics usually have the resonance in the high-mid frequency, and you will see that on an SM57, MD41, you yeah. know, you name it. It's rare to have something that doesn't have that peak in the high-mid frequency range. Um, you know, maybe an RE20 is a bit of, of like of an example where they've tried to, you know, remove that. But most dynamic mics have that. And that's why I think people actually like them on snare drums, you know, electric guitars, because they just boost that range.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it makes sense because you literally have a little diaphragm that is moving around with a, you know, pocket and a space behind it that is sort of, you know, a resonance that makes sense that it's probably more mid range. Whereas, you know, small diaphragm condensers are very, very uh, high. Um, I just think of them as being a tight diaphragm that's going to resonate at a much, much higher pitch, and a ribbon is a much looser diaphragm, Mm. which probably Mm. resonates at a lower frequency.
0: You know, what was my first experience with ribbons? I've built my speakers when I was 15. Okay, I'm showing off here, but actually, (laughs) (laughs) I still use them. I have them here. I brought them to London. Um, They're about 45 kilos each. and they've got ribbon tweeters. Well, the fact is, actually, I just hired a guy from the Technical University of Sofia to design the crossovers, and I hired an acoustician to design the you know, the, the boxes. Uh, so I cheated wow. again. Wow. Uh, but that's, but that's, that's the idea. You, know? you don't have to know everything. You should simply know how to combine stuff. Uh, but the, the tweeters are ribbon tweeters. And back in the day, you, you laugh about this. Uh, But at that time in Bulgaria, you couldn't buy kitchen foil. Wow. And I was, well, you know, being the guy with the big speakers in the neighborhood, I was the guy who would throw the best parties around. (laughs) (laughs) And the definition of best party was that the Twitters must be, you know, destroyed. Uh, Oh, that's great. That's funny. And you know how you fix the Twitter? You just get chocolate. You take the foil, you make sure it's clean, there's no chocolate on it, and you put it on a glass surface and with the nail of your finger, you just press it against the glass so you make sure it's very smooth. Then you cut a little rectangular uh, you know piece from it and you put it on a comb and then you press it with your finger and so you make the you know the shape of the ribbon Twitter.
1: Oh the corrugations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And it's the same thing, actually. That you get. Oh, obviously, you need to make it more accurately if you want a good microphone. But you'll be surprised that I'm still using chocolate foil inside my speakers.
1: <laughs> wow, that's awesome! I'm sure all the um, all the you know the the professionals who are re-ribboning our Coles 40 th- 38s for us are just like rolling right now. They're they're pa- pounding their desk in frustration. But I love hearing <laughs> yeah. stories like that. So that's great. Um, awesome man. well let's jump into reverbs um mm. tell us more about now you had these wonderful videos on Facebook and I don't know if you're going to be including them on YouTube or somewhere where, where you know where we can include that at some point but um, what I saw was a video of you in some amazing looking location you know a cave or a tunnel or or, or a space like that or a church and you're you know, playing something or you fire a gun, and you just hear this reverb going forever. Um, talk about, you know, tell us about your adventure, maybe share a great story about getting into this. And, um, you know, what, what what was your inspiration to do this stuff?
0: Okay, well, as I told you about six years ago, I got involved with Acoustic Audio and and I started learning how to develop plugins with them. And so the platform allows you to capture pretty much any kind of audio system that does not exhibit pitch shift. So, you know, with convolution, you cannot do pitch shifting. Um, Most convolution cannot do distortion, but actually acoustic is one can do distortion. And so, you know, if you combine the two things of me being the guy who's recorded so much on location, like literally I've recorded probably 10 times more music than I've recorded in studios, you know, on location than I've recorded in studios. So I've recorded, I've done a lot of recordings in studios, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a great benefit on working on a good desk like an SSL and having all the comfort. But there's just something about working on location, working in acoustic spaces that, you know, when you bring the drummer inside that that space that, that echoes in a specific way or, or, or a violinist in, in a church or you know, something like that. They just, you know, you can see it on their faces, they get inspired. And so when the performance is good, that charges everything, including yourself. And so I just love recording on locations. And there's something else about it that you have to make decisions during the recording process, which are pretty much mixing decisions. Mm -hmm. So in a way, there's not much hassle in the mix process you've already committed to a lot of the things and you can't undo them. So I like that flow, you know, that kind of workflow that just doesn't put the brakes and just, oh, should I choose this? Should I do that? Can I change this? No, it already sounds good. It was performed with that sounds mm-hmm. and it's there. And so, you know, this is part of my philosophy. Is like, how do I make the best recording that I can? Um, so, you know, combining these two things, the plugin development and my, uh, you know, experience and, and love for recording on location, uh, it was just the most logical thing to try to do some reverbs. Um, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people want to get that Bricasti, that lexicon reverb, you know, that event And there is a lot of beauty in those devices. You know, I... I think that there's plenty of space for devices like this in a mix, and there is the same space for a good, uh, you know, live room uh, where you put your room mics. Mm -hmm. And so they're different kind of sounds. Uh, But I thought, you know, I was listening to, well, I'm not going to name brands here, but I was listening to some impulse response based reverbs based on real rooms. And I thought, well, it sounds all right. But I don't get what I get when I actually record there. And to be fair, even with the reverb that I'm building, I don't get the same sound. You know, there's nothing like moving the mics. And Because if you think about it, if you put a drummer inside a space, it's not just the sound of the space but it's rather the, the fact that the drum kit radiates the sound in all directions differently. Right. So, you know, like the way the drum sound from behind and from the side is different from the way they sound from above or from the front. Yeah. And so so when you have a drum kit inside a real space there's nothing like walking around the space and finding that sweet spot and putting the microphone in that sweet spot.
1: Well, that's a that's a really eye-opening description of why it can be challenging to try and recreate real mm. drum room mics using some sort of reverb and, Very and I, challenging. I hadn't I hadn't heard that before which is but it's so true I mean we're we're just used to when we try and recreate it in the mix we have one mic pointed at one part of the drum and that's the only thing that's feeding into the reverb but in a real room you know your drum is Radiating from all sides, it's not even in the same location hitting the walls. You know, it's your drum set is splayed out over you know a five foot square or whatever. You know, going in all different directions. So yeah,
0: I did a lot to sort of try to deliver that inside the plugin, and it's not easy. And again, I'm I'm honest here. You know, I don't think that I've I in any, and I don't mean just mine. I mean any impulse response reverb will be able to give you. What a real room will give you, but nonetheless, I think that's what I'm managing to create is something that brings uniqueness to, uh, you know, to to people's sounds. You know, when I use it in my mixes, I think, whoa, that's that's a sound that I never heard before. Hmm. So you know, the whole development of this product was was logical. So I have been listening to other other uh, plugins, and they sound alright, but I thought that I can actually do it better, and the reasons are a few here. I think first of all is the technology itself i mean i can get into the nitty-gritty stuff here and i can tell you why i think that uh using acoustic as non-linear convolution can give you a slightly it's a slightly better representation of the space than other convolution reverbs uh but i don't want to go into you know ads and stuff like that um, <laughs> but I, I think i think really the, the 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 real point here is uh that i get that experience of a recording engineer who is primarily specialized in recording on location in spaces like this. And I try to bring that into the plugin. And so, for instance, when I sample spaces, I don't just sample one space and I don't sample it the way an acoustician would. So if you read white papers and, you know, you know, standards of how acousticians sample spaces, you will see, okay, there's this kind of uh, speaker that has to be used in this kind of location, Uh, the sound pressure level has to be this, these kind of microphones have to be used. That's all really good if you're measuring the space, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) we don't measure stuff, we listen to stuff. Right. And so that's my primary focus here. And so sometimes I'd use microphones that are not uh, considered ideal for measurements, but then they sound good. So, what would be an ideal microphone when you want to measure sound like a space like that? Well, there will be an omnidirectional mic that takes mm-hmm. the sound from everywhere, and it will be a very clean mic. And I've done that. I used Earthworks mics, the mm-hmm. QTC series, and they're excellent. You know, I've used the uh, DPA's, I've used uh, Shure's, I've used uh, you know the Sennheiser MKH series. I used the Neumanns. You know, the small diaphragms. Um, you know, I I know what a clean mic is and but sometimes, you know, I just for some of the samples I used an M49 or a U47 mm-hmm. and why not? Because, you know, the approach here is different. You want to create something aesthetically um pleasing, something that that makes you happy when you when you hear it on your source rather than something that is accurate.
1: Right. I mean, um, even if we're just putting up room mics while we're recording in a real space, we're going to want to choose mics that, that we like the sound of the most, and they may not be the most um, clean, flat
0: mm-hmm, frequency mm-hmm. response. Correct.
1: Correct. So, you know, I
0: was, um, well, I mean, first of all, I recorded lots of stuff in crazy spaces, and I always thought, well, I'm going to sample the drum kit here just so I have a snare samples of this space. And I had already built a list of all kinds of crazy spaces, And uh, then it happened that I also came to this space which you might have seen uh, me shooting with a revolver. I should note here that I'm not using bullets. It's just blanks. And actually that's not just for safety reasons but because it sounds better. Because when you have a bullet, uh, a big part of the energy is consumed by the, the kinetic energy that is pushing the bullets away Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and you don't want that. You don't want to lose that energy. You want a loud, clear Mm bank. Uh, so I'm using blanks and a friend of mine told me about this space in Bulgaria, which is just the weirdest thing that you could ever think of. Um, it's a tunnel. It's, it's, uh, so you find it in the mountains. So the whole Southern part of Bulgaria is, uh, it's a mountain region, and there's some beautiful, beautiful places there. And um, you'd go into the forest, you just walk, and all of a sudden you see a tunnel. <laughs> and and I literally mean like all of a sudden you just see a tunnel. And it's a human-made tunnel, and it's according to my calculations, because uh, you, know, you can calculate the length of it mm-hmm. uh, from the impulse response you get. Uh, it's at least ten kilometers long. Whoa! It goes in a straight line. <laughs> it's made of concrete, and it has water on the floor.
1: What would be? Why would they have built something like that? Was this for? There um- is
0: no register. There's no document saying what this is. How I know that it was built during the communist times and yeah. <laughs> Wow, what a trip so, just to get
1: some kind of thing from one place to another, you know.
0: I well some some people say that they were trying to find uranium. I don't think that that's the case. I think that actually it was rather a project that was intending to divert water. Yeah. So, you know, in the mountains when the water melts uh, in the spring and you form these little rivers and springs. And so I think that what they were trying to do is divert the water from going to Turkey and Greece instead to bring it back into Bulgaria and just basically keep the water there. Uh, And and it's just amazing because, you know, imagine a straight line, you know, the resonance of that thing. Oh, yeah. So I measured there uh, one of the longest reverbs on the planet.
1: Wow. Um,
0: It's 100 seconds of reverb. Amazing. 100 hertz. Amazing.
1: (laughs) So I remember, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, but there was um, a website, there was an art installation in a grain silo up in in, uh, Canada called, I think it was called Silophone. dot -hmm. dot org or something like that. And they created a thing where you could upload your, your wave file and then they would play it through the silo and record it. And then it would automatically be ready for you to download. So you could have a 20 second reverb on something. And I thought that was a lot. (laughs) So a hundred is uh as more.
0: Yeah. Well, keep in mind that at one kilohertz. So, you know, in the mid frequency range, that will be about 20 seconds. So, Usually with spaces, the way it works is that the lower you go in frequency, the longer the reverb time is.
1: Oh, okay. More energy.
0: Yeah, it just takes a lot more time for it to be absorbed and dissipate you know, yeah. heat or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And um, well, so I, I, you know, as soon as I went to this place, I just thought, listen, I'm, I've got to do this project. I have to record all these spaces. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was this water well. So, you know, my parents retired and they moved from Sofia, which is the capital of Bulgaria. So it's like a two million, two and a half. I don't know. It's two million people probably at the moment. Uh, they moved to the countryside. So I've been doing like lots of trailing around the region. It's a very beautiful region. And I found this water well. I think it's actually more like a water reservoir of in this abandoned village. And so I think that people were just storing water there. And it's just a concrete uh, construction halfway full with water. So I thought, well, let me see what's going to happen if I sink into this place. And um, it just sounded beautiful. And, you know, it was these two spaces that just triggered my, you know, desire to, I thought, well, no one's ever going to capture these spaces if I don't do it. Yeah. And I've got the technology that will allow me to do it as good as it gets. And I've got the gear here. Um, I just might as well just do it.
1: All right. So so I want to ask you about, I want to dig into these, like the gear and the how-to. But before we even do that, can you give the Rockstars an explanation of what is reverb? So you talked about like heat dissipation and things like that. Maybe just educate us on what reverb is.
0: Okay, right. So, you know. Um, every room, every space that that we walk into, apart from a space called an echoic chamber, which is designed to have no reverb or echo, will have some sort of reflection. So, you know, when I talk to you in a room, you, the first sound that you is going to get to your ears, by definition, is the direct sound. Because that's the shortest uh, path for the sound to travel, from my mouth to your ear. Right. Well, obviously, unless I'm behind the door or something like that, you know, then the sound will have to bend around the the surface. But if we are inside the same space, you hear the direct sound first. But then my voice, you know, goes to the sidewall, to the floor, to the ceiling, bounces off and then gets to your ear. So you're hearing a bunch of reflections. Well, these first reflections that you hear are called the early reflections. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these are echoes, really but they are so close to the original sound, the first sound that you hear, the direct sound, that your brain simply does not uh, distinguish them as separate echoes. And this is, in fact, the way in which um, we get a very good idea of how far we are from a surface, for example, or what kind, what's the size of the space that we're into. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can do a simple experiment. If you close your eyes, And you're in the middle of your room and you start talking while you walk. You start walking towards one of the walls and you will be careful very soon.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, don't.
0: Yeah, yeah, be careful. yeah, Yeah, yeah. But you are not going to hit your head in the wall because before you do this, Well, okay. I mean, it may happen to someone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Depends on how many of those pints of beer we had before we tried this experiment.
0: Depends on the pints, exactly. Um, But if you are careful, you will not hit the surface. You will not hit the wall because your brain will be able to tell you the sound that I'm hearing that is bouncing off the wall. You know, it's telling me that the wall is getting closer and closer and closer. It's just your speech, but you understand that the wall is closer and closer while you're walking towards it. So, at about, I don't know, what, 20, 30 centimeters, you're just going to stop. So, your brain can actually um, extract this information and understand what is going on around you. Now, apart from these early reflections, there's lots of other lateral reflections. So, there's going to be a reflection that bounces off the sidewall then the ceiling then the floor and then it goes to the microphone or you know the listener's ears and that's another reflection and and and, and you know you're going to have like hundreds thousands of reflections like this so you can think about the reverb as a really huge amount of echoes that are condensed in a, like relatively short period of time mm-hmm. and depending on how late these reflections arrive to your ears or to the microphone Uh, there would be either early reflections or, you know, late reflections, which is the tail of the reverb. Now, funny enough, uh, even relatively small spaces can have long reverb times. So, you know, there's a formula that I used to teach when I was a lecturer, um, which allows you to calculate the length of the reverb time in a space. So, you know, the acoustic signature of a space mm-hmm. and the length of it. And that's related to the volume of the space. So clearly a bigger space will have longer reverb time. But it's not just that, actually. It's also the um, materials that the space is made of. Yeah. So clearly if you've got concrete painted with, uh, you know, painted on top.
1: An enamel or, or something. Or, or,
0: or, or marble, you know, this will give you a very long reverb time. But if you've got, I don't know, rock wool or acoustic foam or like lots of sofas or, you know, a concert hall full of humans that also absorb sound, um, you're going to get a shorter reverb time. And so it really matters what kind of uh, materials the room is made of and full of. Uh, So, you know, that actually gives you the sound signature of the space. And another thing which a lot of people don't realize is, well, I guess a lot of people who have tried to build their home studios, they stumbled uh, into this problem called room modes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, every room will have resonances. Yeah. Uh, Just like every equalizer will have resonances. And, you know, let me not get into that uh, subject now. But, um, you know, um, every room will have well, every room is kind of an equalizer. You can think about it in this way. Yeah, And we know that we have problems because sometimes 82 hertz is louder and it's much louder than 60 hertz in your room. And that could lead to problems when you mix, you know, room modes and, you know, they're called standing waves or whatever you want to call them. Well, I think uh, that
1: sometimes we, you know, it's easy for us to grasp the idea that somebody's playing a clarinet and that the wind, you know, the, the sound bouncing around inside the clarinet is creating notes and tones but we forget that the clarinet is being played inside a giant clarinet called the room that also has notes and tones that are just very low and get down into the room mode um, frequencies
0: absolutely so if you're a bass player you'll be familiar with this you play your bass and you play it at the same amplitude you know you hit the string with your finger in exactly the same way but when you play your b note it sounds all right when you play the i don't know g note it sounds really loud yeah and when you play i don't know an a it sounds really quiet well what is going on it's not that you're playing it louder or quieter it's the room that is actually affecting the sound yeah. and in fact this is part a huge part of my recording philosophy and it's why i like to record on location is that the instrument and the space are the source and the musician of course that's the number one factor but Is the musician, the instrument, and the space. It's not just the instrument that you're recording. You're recording the combination of all those, you know, these three things together.
1: And and you're not making decisions that are uh, colored and affected by the control room as well. Not until Mm. later.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: You know, you you mentioned the bass player noticing that the notes are different. Uh, hopefully, the bass player is noticing that the notes are different. <laughs> um, but um, that does bring up another point. So if the bass is being recorded in a space and certain notes are louder or softer because of the response of the room in that space, then later you're mixing it and you're adding in what the control room is doing as well to those notes. Well, it'll make your head spin about whether or not you're getting the low end right on your mixes, you know?
0: Well, I think this is why very often when you read interviews with uh, mixing engineers, um, you will see the few following comments. Um, I always listen to my mix in my car, uh, in my studios, but also in other studios, in another, in my living room. So they change the space where they listen to the mixes. But also, crucial, we should not forget the role of a mastering engineer. I see a lot of people mastering their own music and obviously the problem with that is A, that you don't have the objective ears of the mastering engineer who has never heard your music before, but also you're listening to it into the same space and that is a big problem.
1: Yeah, I agree. So, uh, rockstars listening to your mixes in different places, like um, taking your clarinet and listening to it back in a whole bunch of different clarinets, <laughs> <laughs> see what it sounds like. Well, so very cool. So, thank you for um, kind of giving us that introduction to reverb. And one thing that um, you you sort of said, but I might I might uh, reiterate is that all those different reflections happening, our ear doesn't. Um, you've got the early reflections where we might. Uh, it might sound like it's coming from the same sound. You might have like the next wave of early reflections, where we might hear some distinct echoes. But then the reverb tail itself is like all the echoes blending together, so that we just hear a smooth, endless reverb, and it no longer sounds like distinct echoes. And that's the, the ultimately the reverb tail, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, well, so now, Nick, tell us about you know you going out on this adventure. Talk to us about your studio. Well, first of all, talk to us a little bit more about how what you do. What is the process of capturing a reverb? Um, and then talk to us about, you know, what does your studio look like? What, do you, what are some of the tools you take with you? Um, what sort of tools do you need to travel with to capture reverbs?
0: Okay. So, yeah, actually, you asked me already about this, and I forgot to answer because we got carried away a bit. Um, so... It really depends whether you're capturing the reverb in stereo or if you want to do it in multi-channel. Um, it's very interesting that uh, with the rise of virtual reality and, you know, 3D audio, uh, I think that there is a very good niche for reverb plugins that can do high-order channels. So, you know, sort of um, stuff that captures the sound of reverbs, not just left and right, but rather up and down front and back, you know. So think about eight, maybe 16 channel recording setup that you need to bring on
1: location. Now, bring now on location. Sorry to interrupt, but but, but what mm-hmm. if if somebody was experiencing this in a in a game or a virtual reality, would those 20 channels of audio or whatever would they be delivered in a pair of headphones or would they be delivered yes, with yes, 20 speakers in it. a space? Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do it. You can so basically I could record a reverb with sixteen channels, and then that could be transformed into a binaural stream. Yeah. Which would be suitable for headphones. Because let's face it, even though you know virtual reality is seeing huge investments and it looks like that it's the future of a lot of things that are happening at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um people are not going to install, let's say, 24 speakers yeah, in their living rooms. What is
1: it called? Dolby Atmos?
0: Yeah, well, Dolby Atmos is kind of kicking off. Um, but still, you know, it's just so hard to make people put the two speakers not on top of each other in right. their living rooms.
1: <laughs> or you one right? in the kitchen and one in the living room. <laughs> yeah, you know?
0: Exactly. But okay, so, so I'm just going to limit, you know, the answer to two speakers two speakers only, because otherwise it becomes really complicated, and it's something that I certainly want to look into doing in the future, but for now I've been doing just a two-channel setup, which makes things very simple for me, and also cost-efficient, you know, otherwise it just um, becomes a bit, you know, imagine if you have to bring 16 channels yeah. uh, on location, it can be very impractical and very difficult. Um Wow. So my setup so far has been uh, two extremely high quality microphones, very clean microphones, unless I'm doing some experiments. So uh, the last month I did something like 40 spaces, I'd say, uh, with a pair of Earthworks mics. Great. Uh, In the months before, I used Shopsys because... I find them to be a bit more colored than the earthworks, but I just find them to be colored in a very pleasant way. Hmm. I also used um, a pair of uh, Neumann U89s because I just had these uh, on my disposal. Uh, and and they're also excellent mics. Lar- um, is
1: that? That's a larger diaphragm as well? Yeah, a
0: large diaphragm. So generally speaking, you would want to go for small diaphragm mics. Now, the thinking here is this. A large diaphragm mic is large physically. You know, The physical yeah. size of the mic is, is big. And what that, um, uh, you know, the effect of this is that in the high frequencies, even though if you set the, the mic into an omnipolar pattern, it will not be an omnipolar pattern. So w- what do I mean by this? So an omnipolar pattern means that the microphone is meant to pick up the sound equally from all directions. Yeah. Now that can only happen if the physical size of the microphones is very small. Right. So because otherwise,
1: is, otherwise the high frequency is actually resonating the top of the diaphragm differently from the middle and the bottom of the diaphragm, right?
0: And and, and, and well, it's we just yeah. And, and think about the fact that say say you get a new eighty nine, you know, because I mentioned it, or even a C four one four or something like that. Uh, So there's a large diaphragm mic and the body of the microphone and the diaphragm itself is so large that the high frequencies are blocked by the microphone itself. So, you know, I I I think that what people should always do when they buy a new mic is get the mic in their hands, put a good pair of headphones and start speaking into the mic and rotating the mic.
1: Well, that's not the first it's, thing they should do. The first thing they should do is post it on social media so that all their clients know that they just got a new <laughs> mic for the studio.
0: <laughs> but what I mean is that you learn how the mic sounds from all directions because even in even if you're not recording reverbs and you're recording inside your studio, that mic is going to pick up All kinds of sources okay maybe if you're recording just one instrument the only other thing that the mic will pick up is reflections from the back wall and so on Mm -hmm. you know the acoustics of the room but if there's another instrument there you really need to know how this mic sounds like at the back of it not just at the front of it because at the front is where you know i don't know the guitar is but at the back is where the spill from another instrument is. So you need to know how that sounds like. So the theory here is that the smaller the microphone is, the more even it will pick up the sound from all directions. Now when you're sampling reverbs, at least in theory, this is what you want. Now I found that larger, larger microphones, or larger Omni microphones, because of their imperfection, tend to sound a little bit more focused at distance than a very small diaphragm microphones, which are perfect, but because they pick up sound equally from all directions, they're a little bit less focused. So you see, you get a bit of directionality even in omnidirectional mics, Mm -hmm. which are meant to not have any directionality. And that happens primarily in high frequencies. In low frequencies, pretty much all mics are omni. Right, like cardioid mics are omni at fifty hertz. Period. Figure eight, figure eight mics make some some exception here, but pretty much all polar pa- other polar patterns are omni at fifty hertz.
1: Now, now, at the risk of getting this wrong, isn't the fact that a cardioid is omni at low frequencies part of why um, we have proximity effect? no it's not that that's not it okay no. never mind erase that from your memories right we, we can go into this but honestly <laughs>
0: it, when, when i used to actually i used to explain this to my class and it takes about 45 minutes. So if you really want me to go into no, that. No, no, no. We'll, we'll do that.
1: We'll say that for another one. But um, something else that I, that I would point out, and I ask you if this was a challenge. I do remember when I got my Earthworks TC30Ks years ago. and I loved them. They're so great for, for doing field recording and stuff like that. But there is, um, because the small diaphragm means that you have, by definition, you're going to have a higher signal to noise ratio if you mm-hmm. use a very small diaphragm, right?
0: Yes, so the problem is, so it's a trade-off. The larger the diaphragm, the lower the noise level. Uh, Small diaphragm mics, there's nothing you can do about it. They just have higher noise levels. And actually, I had problems with the earthworks. They sound fantastic, but if you are not recording at high levels, then you need to denoise your recordings. Hmm. And that's something that you don't want to do. Okay. Uh, so maybe maybe let's just talk a little bit about the, the reverb recording because I never got to that. So sure, what yeah, I was yeah. saying is that I use I, I tend to use clean mics. I tend to use small diaphragm mics, but sometimes I intentionally use different mics. Uh, the preamps that I use are Grace Design preamps. In fact, right now I'm talking into a SM fifty seven that goes into a Grace pre, the same pre that I use for the reverb capturing. And I'm using a Mach 4 meq to boost 15K because I'm using a 57. I actually took out the transformer from the mic because um, I find that it colors the sound a bit too much. But the problem then is then there is an impedance mismatch. And so then you need a lot more gain from your mic pre. So mm. the grace pre is very clean. You know, it gives me 70 dB or was it 75? I think 70 or 75 dB of gain that it's just perfectly clean. You can go all the way up with the gain, and you're not adding any noise from the mic pre.
1: Now, would that uh, make it a good choice for a ribbon mic as well?
0: Yes, it's
1: perfect. It's, it, honestly, or, an, or an SM7, even.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Honestly, um, so I love all kinds of preamps, but Grace Design preamps are probably my favorite pre's. Very cool. Why? they're very clean and some people may say ah oh, but they're a bit too clean or they're not a bit uh, you know sterile how do you say that? did I pronounce this correctly uh, sterile, oh, sterile sterile yeah right sterile yeah um but you know what actually i can color them later if i want to because they give me such a natural representation of the recording that i can do anything i want with 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 the recording uh, you know in the post production stage so I use Grace Prees and I use Prism sound converters. Um I'm open to use any other gear as long as it gives me the sound that I get from that setup. Mm-hmm. Um, I bring often a very large battery with me. You're right. Cause, right. Because okay, the thing is, uh, my Grace Pre is, power, is powered on its own battery. So I have an external battery for it. Um But the PRISM, so yeah, the big thing about powering stuff on location is um, whether you can power it with DC or AC. So you get a lot of DC batteries, but very rarely any AC batteries. Mm -hmm. And uh, the PRISM, unfortunately, does not allow DC powering. Um, So what that means is that you need something like a UPS or you need a DC battery with an alternator. And so I've got something like that that delivers pure power, uh, pure sign power. So it's very important that you have very clean power if you want to make clean recordings.
1: And and uh, to point something out that um, maybe it wasn't obvious to me at first, but um, you can't bring a generator because they're not, they can be loud. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, in fact, I, I'm using a modified UPS. Um, which I had to well, I had to disorder quite a few components and solder some new components on the board, um, and uh, that's exactly so that I have a uh, filtered power supply and no beeping because you know that bloody UPS you couldn't switch <laughs> off the <with> beeping noise.
1: <laughs> Hence the modification.
0: Yeah, and and so. You know, I, I just bring that stuff on location. I mean, sometimes, as, as I said before, I'd use a portable tape machine just because it's cool and it's easy. Um, but the thing is that I wanted to make zero compromises. And in, on a lot of these locations, there was no power. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a church, that's easy. You can bring anything you want. You can bring your console there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but But when you're recording inside a cave, um, that has no power. I mean, how would you do it? So that's why I, you know, limited myself to two channels only and that specific setup. And I had this portable battery because I wanted to use my prism converters because I knew that this is giving me the sounds that I like. Now, an interesting thing about the gear um, and reverbs is, so a lot of people, and I've heard this misconception, is they say, oh, well, you're just measuring, you know, reflections. It doesn't really matter what source you're going to use, like what kind of loudspeaker and microphones. Well, that's just rubbish. That's just so untrue. Um, So, you know, we spoke about early reflections and the accuracy in which you capture those early reflections is so important for you to perceive the space as real. Because in the end of the day, you want to create an illusion, and our brains are learning from our everyday lives. And so, you want to represent something in the box that is similar to what happens in reality. And so, you need to represent these reflections accurately. But, how do you do this? Well, exactly very good microphones, very clean mic pre, very clean converters. Otherwise, those transients, you know, the reflections that are happening there those bounces, those echoes, they're going to be smeared. And if you smear those reflections, then everything starts sounding
1: plastic mm. and unreal.
0: That's and why, you, lose you know,
1: illusion. I find one of the biggest challenges with reverbs is when you begin to send drums to a reverb. And I mean, you already talked about some of the reasons behind that, but I think the first thing we notice with a transient and a reverb is that it sounds too boingy at times. Mm, and I imagine okay. that's from, you know that that may be from the algorithms that they use to make the near reflections, but it could also it's just it just points out how tuned in we are to that.
0: Yes, okay. So first of all, how was the sound recorded? Um, I would say even more importantly, what was the source? So we didn't speak at all about the source that you used to record the space. Mm. So what do you really need to record the space? What do you need to do in order to record it? So you mentioned, me popping balloons, um, shooting with a gun, um, actually using loudspeakers as well. And Hmm. there's many other ways, actually, in which you can do it. What you really want um, is you want to excite the space with a burst of energy that is equal in all frequencies. So anything that goes from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz, which is our hearing range, you would want to have something that creates an explosion, like literally an explosion, a bank, that has equal level at all these frequencies. But it's not just that. You also want this explosion to be as short as possible in the time domain. And that is crucial. That is crucial because Ah, that's a very, very long topic, actually. Well, but- it's hard,
1: hard to do. And, and I, um, I've actually interviewed both David Blackmer and Eric Blackmer. And Eric talked about how, or they probably both did, about how David, one of the things that he had to do when he was beginning Earthworks was figure out how to create a single spark so that mm-hmm. they could create um, you know, just that one burst of energy.
0: Yes, I had to go through exactly the same process. Because if you think about it, so how can you make this kind of spark or explosion? Well, one way would be to burst a balloon. Uh, Now, the problem with bursting a balloon is that it's a resonant system. What Mm. that means is that the sound of the balloon will be longer at specific frequencies and shorter at other frequencies, which is, in fact, funny enough, exactly how an equalizer works. And so the practical result of that is that you get more energy at, with balloons, usually it's around three kilohertz and one kilohertz, and you get a dip in between, and you get a dip at, I think, 500 hertz. I have to look at it. But, you know, it's not an even response. So because of the source, you're not capturing accurately the space.
1: I no. would, uh, apologize. Apologies for continuing to interject, but I imagine that in our heads we think of a balloon as this instantaneous thing. But if you just slowed it way down in slow mo, you'd see that there's a whole lot of stuff happening at different times.
0: Exactly. So think about it in this way: it's rupture. You have a, a pin in your finger. You in your hand. You you pop the balloon. If you film this in slow motion, you will see that there's a hole that opens and all of a sudden this becomes something like, let's say, a flute, you know, for a very short period of time. But this becomes something that has sort of, I don't know, cylindrical opening from which the sound, well, the pressure goes out. Right. Yeah. Right. So that can actually be even calculated and you can actually predict that this thing will have something like a pitch. It will be a little bit like an instrument. Fascinating. It's not its not that long that you can perceive it exactly. But, you know, think about this: a simple fact. When you use a gun, which actually behaves in a similar way, it's a bit better, I think, than a balloon. Uh, but if you use a gun, so if you shoot with one type of a gun and another type of a gun, you will be able to say which one's which.
1: Right, because you right. can hear that each gun sounds different.
0: And it sounds different because yeah. it has different resonances. Now, if we didn't have that, they will all sound exactly the same. Right. Good point. That's the gun that I'm after. That sounds exactly the same. <laughs>
1: right. Now, so here's the question that comes to mind for me is, um, do are, are you able to make sparks that that all sound the same? Or do sparks even struggle with that You know, difference in the way you create so,
0: it? So I created... Um, I, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I told you that I had this um, luck to, you know, be uh, part, well, to take part of the running of the ASUK section. Mm-hmm. And around this, I met a lot of academics. And I think it's it was a good way for me to expand my knowledge. So I consulted a lot of acousticians and basically... And, and i mean like really really serious people you yeah. know above phd you yeah you know, guys they, and, they
1: all go to oxford and you all meet at the pub to drink yeah, pints yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, change exactly. the world the,
0: the, the, the serious people and right. and and the, the conclusion is there is no method that has no compromises there you go there is just no way at least at least to my knowledge there is no way that has no compromises but that doesn't mean that the sound that you get is going to sound bad. It can sound absolutely amazing, but it's not going to be the same sound of the room. So what are my conclusions from this? So the, the, the methods that I tested is uh, popping balloons, popping condoms. Now, I'm not joking about that. Um, it, it was a funny experience of going to the pharmacy and, uh, you know, asking the pharmacist, do you have extra large
1: condoms. Right.
0: And I'm thinking of all the jokes <laughs>
1: that you can ask around that topic, but I'm I'm, res- I'm restraining myself.
0: No, well, I'll keep it I'll keep it clean, but but for real, this 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 thing happened to me. So, you know, they would look at you and they would be like, "Yes, we have. Oh, great, may I have uh, 24, please?" And um <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but anyway, so I tried condoms and different sizes and actually extra large condoms of a specific type sound better than others. So you need to experiment with that. Um, I tried using guns with different kinds of blanks and different types of guns. Um, So I basically tested a bunch of them um, and I tested them in an open field. So a huge open field, just a large field with nothing around it. So I don't get much reflections and I can actually test how the um, you can see the in, response, the, the impulse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I recorded all of them and then I compared them. And uh, a good way to actually test is to, to use the impulse to process vocals and then listen to the vocal sound. and it sounds natural, then you have something.
1: Um, another. That, oh, thing, let, let me let me have you say that again because that was a question that was coming to mind for me. So when you do something. You know, you're there you are on location and you have to make a decision about what sounds best. And so that's what you're saying. You would take that impulse, you'd take that, that reverb sample and you would apply it to a vocal, maybe in a pair of headphones or something, and listen to how it's yes. sounding.
0: So this is my secret. So if I could bring a loudspeaker, which is another type of source that you can use, and I, I can talk about this in a second, but the first thing that I'm actually going to do is I'm going to put the loudspeaker in the space. And I'm going to play a vocal recording that was done with a very good gear uh, in a very acoustically dead space. Mm. And I'm going to play it out of the loudspeaker. I'm just going to walk around the space and listen to how the space sounds like. In that way, I'm going to decide where I will place the microphones. And then I will basically, you know, do my thing and listen to the results on vocals um because i think that the human hearing is specifically um sensitive to the way a human voice sounds like cuz i mean let's face it an electric guitar how does an electric guitar sounds like now really how does an electric guitar sounds like do you have a fender do you have a mesa boogie do you have a vox do you mm. have uh, you know whatever would well, you have a fender do you have a gibson what, what are you using there what pickup are you using there? What mic are you using there? What was the speaker of the of the amplifier? There's so many variables. Yeah. Electric guitar sounds like many things. But we're so used to human voice that we are really sensitive to it. So if a human voice sounds good, then chances are most of other stuff will sound good. Then I do other tests further with drums and other sources um so it's it's a really good way to test stuff so you, you listen you don't just uh measure
1: that's cool yeah that makes a lot of sense and you know it's a, that reminder that everything that we experience sonically our understanding of what sounds good and and directionality and tonality and you know what makes us comfortable or uncomfortable some of so much of it just comes from the way the human ear perceives a human voice because it's at the most basic reason why we have hearing and and a voice to begin with.
0: Mm, Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, I'll do this actually, even if I uh, don't have a speaker. I'll pop a balloon, I will then try the sample that I've recorded, and I will have a listen, and I have, I mean, I'm sure that all of my friends are so bored of this vocal recording, but I use always (laughs) the exact same vocal recording. And the reason is that I'm so used to it that I can hear it on any, I can hear it on my studio monitors, I can hear it on my headphones, whatever. I'll just know what's going on. And it's
1: you just have a sample of my voice from recording studio rockstars. Is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you yeah, for that.
0: But- yeah, you have you have a good voice actually
1: same. oh thanks so do you man so do you this is what we just come on here to compliment each other so all right so you take the voice and you and you figure out where to record it you use headphones to listen to that voice processing this um, reverb that you've just created to see if you like the way it sounds um what are some uh, what are some other challenges about doing this stuff with this portable studio that you have to take it sounds like it can potentially be a lot of stuff you have to carry with you.
0: Yeah, this. I mean, carrying is one thing. But, you know, luckily I've got a whole network of people that sort of appreciate, I guess, me as an audio professional and they're always happy to help me. So that has been actually easy because I always have a few, well, a couple of assistants, uh, sometimes a few, uh, that are just keen to join me for a session. So carrying has not been much of an issue. okay. Um, well, I, actually, I, so, so I just want to finish a little bit on, on something I was talking about before, sure. just in case some acousticians are listening to this and then they start saying, oh, this guy is <sighs> using condoms and balloons. We'll what never invite know?
1: him to the pub again.
0: Yeah, exactly. But OK, I just want to open a bracket here and say that I've um, developed my own explosives, um, uh, which I ignite with a high voltage spark. Um, and they're perfectly safe, actually. Uh, And I've also, I'm using loudspeaker, and that's a different test, uh, different way of achieving the results. I'm not going to go into the tech stuff of this, but um, I just want to reinstate that there is always a compromise. So for example, if you're using a balloon, you've got the resonances. If you're using a spark, Ah, uh, so that would be an electrical spark uh, that you create with a battery and usually some supercapacitors and things like stuff, uh, things things like that. Um, you know, you will have a very good impulse, very clean, without resonances, but you will not have low frequencies. Then, if you use a gun, um, it's quite good actually. The problem, and one of the challenges that you know, the questions that you just asked, one of the challenges is that. With a gun you get an extremely high sound pressure levels. Hmm. Now what do I mean by that? If you measure the sound pressure level at your ear, it's sometimes at about 155,
1: 160 dB SPL. Wow. That's that's so, the uh, the um the space shuttle taking off. I I seem to remember. Anyone
0: using guns for anything and I honestly think the only justifiable reason to use guns is to take impulse responses. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <I> like that.
0: <laughs> but anyone shooting with a gun should wear ear defenders, period. Yeah, Unless, so you're talking obviously you don't plugs care or, about your yeah. yeah 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 I usually have earplugs with ear defenders. So I'm you know getting like I'm I'm extra you know careful. But um the problem with it is that when you get such high pressure sound uh, you know such such high pressure levels, uh, the microphones start to distort. And so, if you look at the earthworks, the QTC series, they're uh, giving the maximum level at 140 dB SPL. Mm-hmm. And so, if you use a balloon, that's not an issue at all. But if you use a gun, you need to make sure that there's a specific distance between you and the gun, mm-hmm. because otherwise, you're going to exceed that sound pressure level. And even if you don't clip inside Pro Tools or, well, actually, recently I've been using Reaper because it loads very quickly and it's very light and actually consumes less battery um, Hmm. power uh, from my laptop. Um, uh, But uh, even if you don't clip inside your uh, DAW or you don't clip the converter, you don't clip the mic pre, you can clip inside the microphone. So you know, the microphones build of a diaphragm, uh, condenser mics at least, and then there is a bunch of electronics. So there's a little amplifier behind the diaphragm, which amplifies the sound, changes the impedance, and then it goes to the XLR output. Well, that's the bit where you will clip. Right. And the number of times I've clipped the mics, and I've been like, oh, what do I do with this now? Because you want to shoot from closer but then the problem is that the mics can't handle it and so what do you do and so ah you need to substitute the gun for for a balloon but ah but that's not as good as the gun and and so it's it's a really a lot of thinking of what kind of source you use and what kind of mics you use can't, and sometimes can't you just, put, just put a just power go.
1: soak on the gun you know just like we do on our guitar amps
0: <laughs> <laughs> i wish man honestly i wish that would be so good
1: um, well, that's yeah. fascinating. Well, so so we've been going for quite a long stretch here, and we may be getting near the end of the uh, podcast, but I would like to... Um, I love hearing about all these things that go into your experience of capturing the reverb. Maybe can we shift gears and talk a little bit about, um, now that we've got this capture, what do we use to recreate the reverb later in the studio? I, I'm assuming maybe we're going back to Nebula as a plug-in or something like that. Um, and then... If the rock stars want to begin to experiment with making their own reverb, maybe they think, "Oh, that sounds cool. I want to try capturing the sound of my room, so that you know, if I'm mixing, I can add that back in and don't have to put up room mics all over again." Do you want to talk about those things a little bit about creating your own?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, I can give you some advice on this. So first of all, yes, uh, it will be Nebula that you will need to use um, in order to load my libraries. So what I'm developing, it's it's a plugin, and Nebula comes in two versions. One is a paid version, and the other one is free. So you can think about it as contact and contact player. Um, where Nebula player will be able to load my libraries, there'll be absolutely no drawback on using it. So okay. but you just download the free player, and you get the library, and you just use it. In fact, I am promising some free libraries, so that's something that you should, I think, keep your eyes. Well, I had to make the plugs, sorry, but you know, um, you know, you can just basically get something for free as well.
1: Do you um, want to? Do you want to tell us where to go for any of these things yet, or is that later when it's well, when it's released? You
0: know, what's the thing I have been doing this for a long time and. It's just taking so much time and resources that I think, and I'm not completely sure, but I think in the next week, I'm going to make this decision. I'll probably run a Kickstarter project for this. Oh, cool, cool. Uh, just so that, you know, I can actually spend the time I need to spend on it to make it really cool.
1: That sounds great. Well, by, the time this episode, rush it. by the time this yeah. episode comes out, the Kickstarter may be still happening or may may have already passed, but... Um, that's great. Well, so yeah.
0: Well, so the easiest way actually to find me is if you're on Facebook, just look for Georgiev Sound. That's G E O R G I E V Sound. Great. As one thing without any space in between. And if you just go to uh that's my website. There will be a link there as well. Um, so you know you could. Well, you, the the reason for using Nebula is that there is a specific thing in the algorithm of Nebula that allows for... So you see, if you capture a space, you capture the impulse response of a space, and then you load it into a different software, say Space Design and Logic, or uh, Waves IR1, or Altiverp, or any of that, uh, chances are you're going to get a different result. And that's because of the software that recreates the space, that uses the impulse response and then creates the convolution. Um, So I think that Nebula has some technical advantages that will deliver, and I'm not talking about a huge difference, but, you know, in sound, we always try to get that little extra.
1: Yeah, totally. So
0: I think think it will get that little extra on top. Uh, In theory, uh, you actually wouldn't need Nebula uh, to use my impulses. But I think that I'm actually going to release them only for Nebula. Now, however, however um, you can actually capture your own room. You know, just getting to that question. Yeah. Um, that's actually not difficult at all. So from my experiments, um, there's three really good ways of doing it. The easiest way is to pop a balloon or a condom. And you can just experiment, just get different sizes of balloons, different sizes of condoms, uh, inflate them, uh, you know, as much as you can before they self-explode.
1: I'm glad and, you didn't suggest firing a gun in the studio.
0: <laughs> um, that's, that's the other method.
1: <laughs> with blanks, rock stars, with blanks. But
0: with blanks, with blanks, exactly. Um, And don't
1: stand in front of it, because who was it? Um, No, 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 don't stand in front of it and
0: use ear defenders. Yeah. Uh, I actually had to do a research on that, and apparently up to seven, I think it was, uh, blank shoots per day, it's safe. But nonetheless, don't even do one without ear defenders, especially as an engineer. But okay, let's get to the safe one. So popping balloons, condoms, uh, with a pin. Um, you want to inflate it as much as you as you can before it self bursts um, and uh keep in mind that when you burst the balloon there is a big difference whether you um, pop it on the front considering that's like assuming that that's the side that faces the mic or the top or the side you know so a lot of the energy will go towards the front if you you know bursts in the front Mm -hmm. and that would actually change the frequency response of what you get uh and it's actually worth experimenting uh doing so towards the mic and towards the back wall because if you do it towards the back wall a lot of the sound will bounce from the back wall and then get into the mic so you're actually going to get more reverb into the recording that you do
1: Well, so let's say let's say we're pretty excited about just popping a balloon at all and, and beginning to just see how this stuff works. We would record that into a DAW and then and then what's the next step? What do we do? We take this. So recorded pop.
0: recorded in stereo. Yeah. Recorded in stereo, then uh edit it. Editing is actually the thing that takes the most time for me. People don't believe it, but recording doesn't take even one third of the time that it takes for the editing. Edit it, make sure you have a nice fade out. Make sure that you um, you don't, don't truncate it, don't cut it too early. So the way I do this personally, I use Isotope RX because you can uh, use the spectrogram view there. Mm-hmm. And it's just beautiful. You just see all these frequencies decaying and you can see exactly what is going on. And you can use spectral repair there to remove some clicks and noises and things like that. But make sure that it's edited, that it's you know, chopped and it's faded out nicely. And then you could simply load it into your you know, the the plugin of choice that you have. Uh, if you don't have one, I would recommend you to get uh, Reaper, caucus Reaper, because you can get for something like $45? So what was it? I can't remember the yeah, price. Yeah,
1: something like $60. But it's something
0: like yeah, $60, whatever. Yes, just something ridiculous. You get the DAW, which is Absolutely amazing. Like, I am a Pro Tools guy. I love Pro Tools. But some of the things that I found in Reaper just, you know, just astound me. They're just amazing features there. Very cool. Uh, And it comes with uh, a plugin called Reverb. And that can load any impulse responses. But you can do it again. Logic Space Designer, Waves, whatever. You know, all of them do it. And you can just load your Balloon into, you know, into that plugin, and then just have your space there.
1: It's just a but wave still,
0: file that you're loading into the plugin.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. Just so cool. make sure you don't clip it. Yeah, It's very important that you don't clip it.
1: Well, I think that that um, is encouraging because just the fun of trying that experiment and, be, and, you know, trying it out a handful of times, and I imagine the first time we do it, we're just going to be thrilled to get anything to work at all, then... We'll dig into like how can we make a better sample and all that, um, but really cool. So then you can start using it on sessions. Now I wanted to ask you, um, what are some useful ways to use these reverb samples that you create, um, and then what are some of the mistakes that people commonly make when they're trying to recreate a reverb? I mean, you talked about you know if you choose some of these other more common. Reverb plugins—they might not sound quite as good as Nebula, but are there any other mistakes that people make when they're trying to use these reverbs in the mixing stage? Where, if you if you only knew this, it might sound more better.
0: You know? Okay, few tips that I would give here. First of all, if the space does not have any windows or doors open, chances are in the low frequency range you're going to have far longer reverberation time than in the high frequencies, in the mid frequencies. Now, when you use this in a mix, uh, it's a very common problem that um, the low frequencies just become uh, cluttered. You know, like imagine that you sample your live room and the low frequency reverberation time at 100 hertz is three seconds, but in at 1K, it's half a second. Do you see where I'm going with this? So yeah, one way dark would be... Simply to fade it out. Now, fading out is an art in itself because a simple linear fade may not sound as good as some other shapes. Hmm. Um, I'll just mention them, but y- people will have to research that on their own. So, logarithmic or, uh, you know, logarithmic shapes
1: are actually pretty good um, for doing this kind of stuff. Um, well, more importantly, and, and the thing that's nice about that is rock stars, you could just take that one sample. And put ten different fades on it. Export those really quickly, and then as you load those into your plugin, you'd see if you like one more than the other. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you can actually try different lengths. So just because the space that you've captured is, uh, let's say, five second long church, it doesn't mean that uh, you are forced to a five second long reverb time. Uh, so you can just shorten it to two seconds, and all of a sudden it sounds like a gated reverb. And actually, the other shape, just so it's on the record, is a cosine uh, shape. It's a really good shape for reverbs, I found. Um, Another thing is, how far are you going to pop the balloon, actually? and
1: um, You mean, are you close to the mics, or are you all the way over where the drum set would be?
0: Exactly, and where are you going to put the mics? Uh, Because, actually, practically speaking, if you place everything in the middle of the room, you're begging for problems. Because a lot of rooms, well, all rooms, in fact, uh, will have problems right in the middle of the room because that's exactly where uh, the room modes are happening uh, Yeah. for the fundamental frequency, you know, and all all harmonics. So, you know, if you have a room mode at 100 hertz, you're going to have a problem there at 300, uh, well, at um, 300, 500, and so on. Um, So... uh, I... Well, again, listen, you know, if you could actually put a speaker somewhere in the room, if that's especially your studio or something like that, Mm -hmm. put a speaker in the room, move the speaker around the room until it sounds good. Listen, find a spot. And even if that's asymmetrical, you know, so you may have the speaker a little bit on the side, uh on the left side of the room, a bit closer to the corner, but not quite in the corner. One mic's a bit to the left, one to the right. That's not a problem. It doesn't have to look good. It has to sound good.
1: Yeah, so let's say we want to create an impulse response reverb um, or convolution re- reverb that um, we want to use on our drums when we're mixing if we, if we want to have a little bit more control over our room sound. Do, would it be okay to take a speaker and feed just a close mic snare through it and then find a place in the r- room and play that back and then walk around till you find a spot where you're like oh the room mics sound pretty good here yeah. and then just put them up
0: yeah that would be a very good way
1: to do it and then just, just, and then you would have to go back and pop the balloon where the speaker is
0: yes and actually um right so we didn't speak about speakers but all our speakers are broken <laughs> I know that sounds.
1: <laughs> Mine break a lot when we blow them up, so I understand.
0: <laughs> so, a loudspeaker is actually a really difficult thing to design, and they all have problems with um, resonances, smearing of the high frequencies, uh, all, all of which uh, have been. Phase. I can go on forever. Uh, I was going to
1: say all of which have been solved by using um, kitchen foil and chocolate um, and a comb, <laughs> right? <laughs>
0: You know what, these speakers they don't sound as good. And I can actually I know very well how to make them sound good now. But they but taste great want, and you can
1: you can lift the want tweeters. To them. It's like
0: chocolate, man. It's great. <laughs> they probably have some residue of, of chocolate there, yeah. Right I don't want to change them, man. You know, like they just I I know these speakers. I've been listening to the, to them for more than twenty years. As soon as I hear a record in this, I know what's going on
1: interesting cool man well so um i think we got to sort of wind things up here is there anything that you that i you know i cut you off a lot of times but is there any topic you need to wrap up and and finish your thoughts on oh well i mean
0: yeah i mean look i i'm not a commercial guy but as, as soon as i have some audience i guess i should say this so i'm not developing just reverbs but Also, some really, really, really nice EQs at the moment. Oh, great. So I'm particularly working on a very, I mean, very rare Valve EQ that will be extremely limited in terms of frequency choice because that's the original gear. But it's something that everyone would want to have and it's going to be super cheap. And I'm working on a very clean EQ that has uh, this famous 40 kilohertz band and that's going to be ready quite soon as well. Super cool. And well, yeah. I mean, what else could I sell to pe- uh, say, so, so, <laughs> say to people? It's just, um, I, I, I personally like to experiment and have a lot of fun with, with all of it. And I think this is what, well, really, what drives me is music because I find meaning in making music. So, just whatever you do, don't forget that you can make this work. Uh, you know a better one with the sounds that you make.
1: Well, I think it's very cool um Nick and I I feel like you're an inspiration as far as you know coming up with a really adventurous idea and just going for it and and like the whole vision of you with a backpack full of microphones, you know, trekking through the deep forests looking for sounds. Is pretty cool. I can't wait to hear your cave series when you finally, you know, explore all the caves of the world and get the get the ultimate reverbs. But um, remind the rock stars one more time how they can find you online and follow you so that they can, you know, keep up with these plugins as you're creating them and and the reverbs when they're ready and that sort of thing.
0: All right. Well, thanks for this. So, well, Georgiev Sound is my website, G-E-O-R-G-I-E-V sound.com. And my Facebook is, again, Facebook slash Georgiev Sound. Um, and you can follow me also on Twitter at uh, Nick uh, underscore Georgiev. Um, and well, I mean, since you mentioned it, can I just say something about spaces and just sure. tell you this really crazy story?
1: Sure.
0: Um, so first of all, actually, you know, the cave stuff that you've seen, it's not, I mean, it looks cool. Yeah, sure, it looks nice on photographs. Um and it's a good marketing thing, but actually what's really interesting about caves is So I I recorded four caves this summer and what's really interesting is that those uneven shapes uh, Create a very diffused sound. So there's no resonances And you know, what's the beauty of reverbs that don't have resonances that are really diffused A very typical example for that would be the EMT-140 plate. Hmm. Very diffused. Well, the beauty of that is that you can add a lot of it on any source in your mix without changing its uh, character. And so the way I guess people describe these kind of reverbs is that they blend with the source and they just glue the mix. Because this is one thing which I absolutely adore about the 140. And that's a 140 that it's tuned really well because Mm -hmm. I've used 140 to sound horrible. Um, And, you know, when it's tuned really well, it's that density of the reflections that all frequencies are sort of represented without any advantages or disadvantages. You know, they're just there and they just add sustain to the sources and sense of space without altering the sound character um so i actually think that caves are cool for that reason and you know um last summer just just to say that you know i mean you know music production and music making and sound recording all of this is i guess we've all experienced the difficulties of you know you know, making you know, living from it, and you know, just economical difference, difficulties, and all of that, and there's you've got to find something that drives you. You know, last yeah. uh, last summer, I, I I told you about this water well that I found in this abandoned village. Yeah, and so I'm going to post some videos, and and and, and you know, I, I'll post lots of stuff on YouTube, and I'll send that to you. Um. I, I found this water well that sounded really nice. Well, there was no way to get there by car. There was just no way, even if you get like a really proper CUV. So you know what I did? I put a 40 kilogram, uh, and I'm, I'm serious, I can show you pictures. It's 40 kilogram uh, rucksack on my back hmm. with a X speaker inside, a 12 kilo UPS, two mic stands, um, about 20 meters of power extensions and about 20 meters of mic cables, a laptop, preamp and converter. And I climbed this, um, what was it like? Um, I don't want to exaggerate it, but it was a long climb. You know, it was a big uphill, a huge hill to get there. Yeah, I must have lost a kilo <laughs> <laughs> climbing that thing. But you know what? When you get the sound and you hear it and it's beautiful, it's just, yeah, it was worth it. It was just, yeah, it just what drives you.
1: That's cool. And I mean, you know, what you're describing is such an adventure to recording. Um, I mean, sometimes we can feel like the studio is an adventure as well, but a lot of times we can feel like we're just, you know, stuck in a windowless room all day and night. And, um, you know, going out into the world to capture sound it's a lot of fun. It's one of the reasons why I did it initially with my friend, and we'd hop in a car and take a studio and drive around the country looking for people and places to record. It's just a great way to do it. Well, um, Nikolai Gorgiev. Did I say it right?
0: <laughs> Gorgiev. Gorkiev.
1: Gorkiev. Very close. All right. I hope Georgia. 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 <laughs> Georgia. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Recording Studio Rockstar. It's an absolute pleasure. I have one last question. This is the hypothetical one, but we're going to take the way back studio machine. You're going to go back and find young Nick, um, 14, 15 years old, recording giant dubstep sounding bass uh bagpipes in in (laughs) Bulgaria, and you say, young man, I have come back to give you this one bit of advice. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star of the recording studio yourself one day. What advice would you go back and give yourself if you could?
0: Be brave and do it. You know, with the time I learned to think in this way and just, I mean, to be honest, I didn't even have the funds to do this project and I just did it because I thought that, you know, people sometimes are afraid of just going that extra step and just doing stuff and committing to it and just just just, just, just making the step, you know, and, and, and you just have to do it. You're not going to lose anything from it.
1: Yeah, I love it. What a great quote. Um, Nike, you know, be damned. Be ber- be brave and do it is much cooler. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rockstars, thanks again for listening. A pleasure to hang out with you, Nick. Uh, I can't wait to meet you in person. And um, don't forget my offer, man. You need an assistant for the bagpipe convention in Bulgaria. <laughs> Keep me in mind. <laughs> I don't know how sure, I get man. there from Nashville. But um, <laughs> thanks so much for listening. And uh, I look forward to meeting you around the studio someday.
0: Cool, man. Thanks a lot. It
1: was a pleasure. All right, man. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstarscom slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text. R.S. Rockstars to 33444 again that's R.S. Rockstars to 33444 and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates and I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers all totally free thanks for listening, I'm Lid Shaw and this is Recording Studio Rockstars, now go make great music